Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. We have the opportunity to hear some stories about the great team from the 1980s with the likes of Florence Taylor and Harry Carson, Phil Simms, Mark Bavaro, and a handful of other stars that really splashed into the NFL scene. We have a great story. And we have that today with an author that wrote a book about this Giants team and their lives beyond that great season and their football careers. Coming up in just a moment is Gary Myers one of the NFL's insiders. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And boy, do we have a treat for you today. We're going to go back and talk about the 1980s NFL football. And when we think about that era, we probably have first thoughts of teams like the San Francisco 49ers or the great 1985 Chicago Bears teams or a handful of others that uh, really had some great success in that era. And one of those that we may not think about right away are the New York Giants. They sort of came out of nowhere with Bill Parcells and some of the great stars that they had in that team. And we have a gentleman that was covering the New York Giants at that time, as well as the Dallas Cowboys in a decade prior. And he got to start. His name is Gary Myers, and he has a new book on this Giants team from 1986. It's titled Once a Giant, A Story of Victory, Tragedy, and Life After Football. The author's name is Gary Myers, and he's here with us today. So Gary Myers, welcome to the Pigpen. Thanks a lot, Darren. It's nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you too, Gary. Now, this is an exciting topic. Uh, you know, the Giants are are such a, a great uh, team to, to talk about. They have so many good eras of, of football to talk about. And this 1980s and into the early 90s team is just you know tremendous uh, when you're thinking about the players that they had on there and the coaching staff and the legacy afterwards. Now, before we get into that, though, I'd like to know a little bit about yourself. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you get to the point of writing about uh, you know some of these great teams in football. Yeah, this is uh, my sixth book. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I'm really, really happy with this one. Um, you know, I've been writing football almost my entire career. I, I started off in New York and then had a great job opportunity to go to Dallas, working for the Dallas Morning News at the beginning of that great newspaper war between the Morning News and the Dallas Times-Herald, and I was covering the Cowboys. Cowboys were really the battlefront of um, the newspaper war, and um, – it was just a really incredible experience for me, not only living in another part of the country, but walking into a situation where many of the media who were covering the Cowboys, you know, grew up with the Cowboys. And I, I think we're hesitant to really get into the stories that I believe people wanted to read about, uh, you know, how the players feel about management, about their contracts, about uh, Landry and Shram and Brandt and, um, what it really meant to be on such a high-profile team. And I, I really decided the way to cover that team was like how I would cover a team in New York. And I wasn't beholden to the organization like I felt a lot of the writers there were. And 
So I think it stood out pretty quickly that I was different. I had my first training camp there in 1982. Uh, Tom Landry told the players on the night that they arrived in Thousand Oaks, you know, be careful what you say around here because we have a New York guy among us, <laughs> which I took as the open top of thing. I love covering that team. Uh, it was kind of the beginning of the end of the Landry era. Uh, but so many fascinating personalities on, on that team. I, I just really enjoyed getting to know those guys. Still friends with a bunch of them today. Wasn't friends with them then because you really have to draw the line. But now that we're kind of past that point in our lives, you know, I've reconnected with a bunch of them. And, and, and it's been, um, that's been kind of a fun thing for me. And then in 1989, I moved back to New York. Uh, I got an offer from the New York Daily News to be their football columnist, which is a job I always wanted. And at the same time, HBO offered me a job to be their um, uh, in, inside information reporter, to be their insider. Uh, I was the second on television from the newspaper part of it who crossed over. Will McDonough was the first, and I was the second. And then Chris Mortensen came along, and now everybody's an insider. So I, I stayed. So, so you're, you're basically an insider of the insiders. Right. Well, I, I was a trailblazer. <laughs> I give all the credit in the world to Will McDonough to open the door for the rest of us because there's no question that the newspaper guys who were around teams all the time knew more than just the television guys, you know, than the former players who they prop up there uh, trying to tell people what was going on. So Will, may, Will was the first guy to show you can do both, and he did a great job. And then, you know, HBO hired me. And then I think a year or two later, Mortensen went to ESPN. And, yeah, so I was at HBO for 13 years. Uh, then I went to the Yes Network um, in 2002. It was the first year of that network. They were starting up with the Yankees, and they wanted to do a football show. So I did that for 12 years. And I stayed at the Daily News until 2018. In the last five years, I've been doing some consultant work. And then I just got really inspired to write this book. And I've been working on it every day for two years. And it comes out September 12th. And uh, it's always a thrilling day. No matter how many books you write, the publication date is is just amazing. And so that's going to be a big day. Wow, I betcha. That uh, sounds like an exciting thing. I can appreciate. It. I'm going through my first uh, process of writing, and I, I didn't realize what it was. You know, I wrote a lot of blogs, but writing a book is a whole different animal. And uh, so, I can appreciate what you're going through. I, I can't wait to someday, hopefully, get to that point where you're at, uh, having that uh, pleasure of having it come out. So, well, I can't uh, wait to read yours. Yeah. Oh well, thank you. I'll, I'll make sure you you know when that's coming out too. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's kind of interesting what you said with Coach Landry, or actually Coach Landry's statement, telling the, the the Dallas players, watch out, we got a New York guy, because his coaching tree came from New York as a defense coordinator of the Giants, a, a team that uh, you wrote about you know, a few decades later. But a uh, good way to segue into the Giants and uh, in, in your book here. So what, what uh, was the sort of the essence that made you want to write about this team of the Giants? What, what made them special for you? Well, it was a combination of two things, Darren. One, I always wanted to write a New York-centric book. My first five books really had nothing to do with New York. And um, I also, life after football was such an incredibly important topic. And we've all heard the last 10 years or so about CTE and players' concerns about that and, you know, can't be officially diagnosed until after a player passes away. But there's been so many stories of players who donated their brains uh, to be analyzed and, and there was some form of CTE. But I, I knew that CTE was only part of the story, that players were having emotional problems, a lot of physical problems with knee and hip and shoulder replacements, Um some of them in wheelchairs, you know, just all kinds of uh, different things that were impacted by a lifetime of football. So I, I really wanted to shed a light on, okay, you know, we see these guys in their 20s to mid-30s, and in the case of Tom Brady, to his mid-40s. But, but once they leave and once they retire, what happens to them? 
Now, you're much more financially secure now because the money is so much different nowadays than it was in the mid-80s. Players, many players had to get a job in the offseason because the, the salaries uh, playing football, you know, they were better than most, but it wasn't astronomical. Um, so they've they've also faced a lot of financial problems as they've gotten into the 50s and 60s because the, the health insurance now it's for five years after you retire. Back then it was for 18 months. And when you have surgeries in your 40s, 50s, and 60s that are very expensive, unless you're working for a company where the health insurance is provided or you get good rates, you know, this can be incredibly expensive. So a lot of guys have suffered through some financial problems. So, Darren, it was a combination of a topic I was really passionate about and a New York team, the 86 Giants, it was exactly the age group I wanted to write about. And I already knew a lot of those players and had good relationships with them and were counting on them to really trust me and be forthcoming. And I think what I produced was a book that is going to be eye-opening for a lot of people. Um, players that they thought they knew everything about. Um, I think at the end of the book, their, their overriding thought will be, I didn't know that about just about every player that I write about. So it's uh, a little surprises at the end. So not, not only at the end, all throughout the book. Okay. Yeah. Right. No, I'm saying at the end, I think their overriding thought will be, well, I didn't know that. And they can look back basically to every player and every chapter that I wrote. And I there's gotcha. going to be stuff in there that they didn't know because, you know, to a large extent, I didn't know it. And I like to think I know more than the average fan. Some of my readers never thought that I did. But, um, you know, I feel if I didn't know so many things that were going on with these players and, you know, most, if not all, of the people who are going to read this book didn't know it either. So I think it's going to be really eye-opening. Okay. Well, you know, I, I sit there and I, I think back, uh, you know, back in the, the mid-'80s. And I, I think, you know, from what I remember, you know, not being in the New York market, the Giants just sort of came out of nowhere I don't think anybody was really expecting them to be good. You know, everybody was you know paying attention to the San Francisco's and the Chicago's at, at that point in time in the NFC. And you know, who knew in the AFC there wasn't really anybody very dominant. Maybe you you know Oakland or LA or whoever they were at that point. Right. Uh, but you know, the Giants just sort of came up with this young coach and these players that you really weren't that familiar with, and all of a sudden, wow, they're they're mainstream and these guys are exciting to watch on offense and defense. And so where, where do you think uh, that came from? Is that, you know, do you credit that uh, totally to, to Parcells of building that team and his philosophy, or was it, uh, you know, the, just that they just hit such a, a talent pool at all the same time, or maybe a little bit of both? Well, I, I certainly think Parcells had a lot to do with it as did Belichick. George joined the general manager, built the foundation of that team with, with Phil Sims and, Lawrence Taylor and Carl Banks, uh, they both inherited Harry Carson and George Martin. Um, so uh, Parcells, once he got on the same page with George Young and George really understood the kind of players that Bill wanted, um, he did a really good job supplying him with players that fit into his system and that he can win with. Um, the 86 team was the Giants' first championship in 30 years. But they went into that season fully confident that it was their turn. They had made the playoffs in 84 and 85. They lost both times in the divisional round. And they thought they were taking those steps that were going to lead to a championship and felt 86 was their year. And, um, you know, you had some really powerful teams. The 84 49ers, the 85 Bears, and the 86 Giants, I think now that we look back on the entirety of the Super Bowl era. You take those three teams, and I would say you add the 07 Patriots, who didn't even win the Super Bowl, and I would say you could make a case for those four being the best four teams of the Super Bowl era. The reason I wouldn't count the 2000 Ravens is because I think uh, if they ran into a team in the Super Bowl or the playoffs with a, a really good offense, that uh, that defense was great, but I don't think it was the 85 Bears defense. But, uh, you know, the, the 2000 Ravens were maybe just a notch below those three teams that I mentioned. Um, 
the 49ers are the only one of those teams that were really able to sustain it over, you know, a decade's period of time. You know, they won in 81, 84, 88, and 89. The Giants won in 86 and 90. And then not again until 2007. And the Bears haven't won another one. They've only gotten to one more. And um, San Francisco has been in a Super Bowl. Well, I guess that was 2012. You're the historian here. Is it 2012 <laughs> they were in it against Baltimore when the lights went out in the Super Bowl? Yeah, I think it was 2012, 2013. You're right in there somewhere. Something, <laughs> yeah. something like that. Right. Yeah. So that, that was a great era for NFC football between San Francisco, Chicago. Uh, Dallas was still, you know, very good in the mid 80s. Uh, Washington. Right. That was that was some pretty powerful teams right there. I'm probably forgetting somebody. That's well, that's sort of what they, they always say. The seventies the sort of belong to the AFC and, you know, right after the merger. And uh, cause I, I don't know that, I don't think an NFC team won it in the seventies. I think it was all AFC teams. And then in the eighties, there was no AFC team that could compete with the NFC. They they had so many dominant teams. Like you said, the Washington's and New York's and Chicago's and San Francisco's just dominated, you know? So, yeah. I mean, you had the Dolphins and the Steelers in the in the seventies. You know, I never thought of it like the no AFC team, NFC team win it in the seventies. Maybe Dallas, maybe one one early. I, I'm trying to I'm trying to think back. I know that those Steelers had four. Oh, yeah. Dallas, Dallas beat Denver. Yes. Okay. So they they got they got the in, one uh, in there. Seventy seven, maybe. Yes. So the, the yeah, Steelers won seventy five, seventy six. I think right. Dallas won seventy seven, and the Steelers won seventy eight, seventy nine. And then the Raiders won an 80. And then you started that NFC streak there with the 49ers. Right. Yeah. So it's just sort of, it, it's things balance each other out. You know, one, one conference is up and the other one comes back. Yeah. And so it's kind of odd how that, that sort of worked that you look way. At, you look at, you know, what's going on now in the 2023 season, you'd say that the strength of the league is definitely the AFC because they have all the good young quarterbacks and they have the best old one in Aaron Rodgers. And, uh, I would Russell say, Wilson and you know, yeah, um, but I would say the best quarterback in the NFC right now you probably would say would be Jalen Hurts, and I'm not sure I, when, when you compare him to all those good young quarterbacks in the AFC. I'm not sure you'd put him first. You know, he'd probably be in the top five or six. But you know, when you have uh, Joe Burrow and Herbert and Trevor Lawrence, you know those guys. I mean, it's Mahomes. Mahomes. Uh, you, know, you got yeah, yeah. You got seems some... like an old guy to me. Like, right, right. Yeah, you think so? He's been in it so so often. It's uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's crazy how the 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 quarterback pendulum swung to the yeah. AFC, especially with Wilson and Rodgers coming over, just sort of, and Brady retiring, just sort of <laughs> a paradigm well, shift. Wilson, Wilson, actually brought down the level of the quarterback playing the AFC. That, that's season. true, and it, it'd be really fascinating to see whether Sean Payton can get him back and straightened out. He, he's known as a quarterback whisperer. So he, look what he did for Drew Brees' career. So sure. yeah, it could be very interesting. So uh, excited to see what that is. We'll be back with more from this interview in just a moment right after this. Hey, listeners, I want to share something with you that we can have fun with together. Why don't you come and play some fantasy football with us in a different way? We talked to a creator of Tailgate Fantasy Sports, Hans Kaiser, a few weeks ago, and he told us about this Tailgate Fantasy Football, and it's really a neat thing where you get to play with players of your own team. Yeah, your favorite guys are on your team, no matter what, and you can play with us here on Sports History Network, including me. I'm under there as Pigskin Dispatch. You can go to uh, https backslash tailgatefantasy.io forward slash pound sign SHN. You can do that and play with us at Tailgate Fantasy Sports in the Sports History Network. So make sure you join us and have a lot of fun this football season and get the bragging race. See if you can beat me and my Steelers team I'm putting up or Ernie Chapman and his team with the Lions or one of our many hosts and many of our friends that are on there too. So compete with us and play with the best tailgate fantasy sports uh, this season. Hello sports fans. I'm Dana Augusta and you are listening to the hardest working man in all of sports history, the peerless principal of the pig pen, my man, Darren Hayes and the Pigskin dispatch right here on the sports history network. 
And now back to the interesting conversation with our guest. So let's let's get back into the Giants now. Okay, they had this great run, you know, won the Super Bowl, uh, you know. So, but that's not what the whole the whole book is about. You right. you, you alluded to it a little bit. You're you're talking about you know years after uh, and looking at these folks and what happened to them. You know, from that, you know, the the high of highs of uh, taking a Lombardi Trophy and carrying around a football field. So, tell us a little bit about what happens to to some of these folks. Yeah. Well, f- first of all. I don't want people to think that the book is 300 pages of depressing stories because I I made sure not to let that happen. This 86 team was really a brotherhood, which is still very strong today. So I spent a good deal of the book explaining the behind the scenes things that happened that brought these guys so close together. And because they were building to that moment with basically the same foundation each year in 84, 85, 86, they became incredibly tight. And with Harry Carson, you know, considering himself captain for life and basically overlooking that entire roster and and, and being the point man, if anything goes wrong, they all get in touch with Harry. There's some really heartwarming stories in there about things that Harry and Bill Parcells have done. And some really funny stuff about the pranks that they pulled on each other and how despite having guys like Parcells and Belichick uh, leading the team, that it was a pretty loose team that had a lot of fun together. So I I kind of established that. And then I fast forward. and It's not a game-by-game summary of what happened in 86. That was done over and over again in the years right after they won it. Uh, so I jump forward, jump ahead to where these guys are at in their lives now. Who's made it through to the other side, so to speak, um, intact? Who's suffering financially? Who's suffering from mental health issues and physical issues and with knee replacements and things of that nature? Um and what are they doing about it? And wh- how have their teammates helped them get through it? I mean, when you think about all the things that potentially could happen to a team, or just not just to a team, but to anybody at that point in their life, in their 50s and 60s, the Giants run the gamut from cancer to a benign brain tumor to a, a player having a stroke, um, all kinds of body parts replaced. Um, early forms of Alzheimer, uh, depression, thoughts of suicide. So th- that's why I thought it was important in the book to really balance that off with, you know, how were these guys when they were in their 20s and, you know, how they became such a tight-knit group that they rely on each other to this day and then talk about the things that they do need to rely on each other for because they're going through all kinds of stuff as they grow old together. And what's really the most heartwarming part about the book is, you know, the players had this love-hate relationship with Parcells, but he's really taken over as the patriarch of this team. Now, you know, Wellington Mara passed away, I think it was 2005 or six. And up until that point, Wellington was the patriarch. And for the players who were the age of the, players now who were on the 86 team, if that makes sense. You know, that mm-hmm. players in their 50s and 60s around the time that Wellington passed away, you know, Wellington looked after him. And now Parcells feels a very close attachment to this particular group of players, probably more than any other team he ever coached. Um, many players call him on his birthday. He was just 82 on August 22nd. Wow. A lot of <laughs> yeah. You a just lot of you don't picture Bill Parcells right, being right. eighty-two. So, yeah. so, we're, so let's talk about the, the the age that we're talking about of these Giants players is probably predominantly in their sixties. Well, late fifties to late sixties. Okay, or just around seventy. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. So I was just going to finish up by saying that about Parcells, a lot of them send him Father's Day cards, huh. which is you know pretty unusual. And you know, one of the stories from my book that's kind of you know, gotten been resonating is that Parcells has written checks for about $4 million to 
$4 million total to about 20 of his former players who come to him, you know, in financial uh, hmm. despair, I guess, that you best way to say it. And, uh, you know, he's put all the money aside that he feels he needs to re- live the rest of his life. And hopefully that's another 30 years. Um, he's put all the money aside for his daughters and their kids. And what he has left, he says he's designated to help his players. And I said, why do you do, do that? You have under, under no obligation to, you know, be the, um, um, the, the guy who tries to look after these guys financially. I mean, that's a huge commitment. It sure is. And, and he says he feels an obligation and a responsibility because those guys sacrificed so much for him when he was coaching them and helped make him a Hall of Fame coach and a two-time Super Bowl winner. He says it's not even a thought in his mind. It's, you know, as long as the, they're coming to them for money for the right reasons, it's not like a guy has a million-dollar house and wants to build an office on and comes to Bill, hey, you know, can you write me a check for $40,000 so I can build an office on? Well, no, no, they wouldn't do that, and he wouldn't do that. It's the guys who say, you know, I don't have the money to pay my lawyer or my taxes or uh, my mortgage payments. Uh, I need some money to hold me over because it's not until next year that my pension kicks in, and I promise I'll pay you back. But Bill doesn't look at it as he's loaning the players the money. He looks like he's giving the players the money with absolutely no expectation of being repaid. And I, I think it's a fascinating, phenomenal story. You know, people can have their opinions about Bill, how he conducted himself as a coach, that he was critical of his players, that he jumped from job to job. He kept saying he was going to quit, and this time, you know, he's he means it for good, and then he kept coming back. All that stuff is legit. But what he's doing today to help his former players is far more important than leaving the Jets and saying, hey, fellas, write it on your chalkboard. I'm never going to coach again. And then a couple of years later, he shows up in Dallas with a four-year, $17 million contract, and he's coaching again. I mean, that, that's part of life. What he's doing now is extraordinary. I'm, I'm glad you shared that because you just sort of uh, – probably not just myself, probably the listeners too, sort of a paradigm shift of what you think of Bill Parcells. I mean, the perception from us outside of New York is, you know, especially thinking of him as a Giants coach, he wasn't exactly considered a player's coach. I mean, he was a disciplinarian, I would say. You know, he was a hard ass. He was hard on his players and they they responded to that. That's what that that team needed for motivation. And, you know, they did well. But even going to other places, you, know, you heard the stories of, you know, not not a friendly guy, you know, just uh, just, you know, run them into the ground and uh, two a days in practices and everything else. But now you hear this. That's the ultimate of being a player's coach when the the man really needs it. That there was a, the former player and uh you know, not not necessarily holding out his hand, you know, expecting something, but you know, a, a good ear to listen to from his old coach and somebody that, that cares for him. I, I, I mean, that's that's a great story. So, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and, and Darren, what he says also is he knows when the players are coming to him that he's the last resort because it's embarrassing for them to have to go to their former coach and say, "Hey, I really need help here." Bill knows at that point they've exhausted every other possibility. And um, he enjoys the relationship that he has with his former players. He just has a very soft spot in his heart for basically all of them. And um, it it does put a different light on the kind of guy that he is today. I mean, I've known him since 1981. And so it's 42 years. Um, And I've seen an amazing transformation in him just as being this, like you say, a hard-ass coach. Uh, he had re- good relationships with some of his guys. They used to call him Parcells guys, you know, that inner circle of guys that he really trusted. But the majority of them thought he was a pain in the ass. And mm-hmm. But now those that won a championship with him, with some of them won two championships with him, realize how much he meant to their professional lives and, and how much he taught them in life with life lessons. And uh, Phil Sims says he winds up quoting Parcells every day in some aspect of his life. So it's very, again, it's very unusual 
for a, a coach to have that kind of impact on his players. And then today to feel that they should, he, he feels good that they comfortable enough with him that they turn to him when they really need help. Yeah. Well, that's uh the thoughts of just running through my mind now. Okay. So this is maybe you're probably one of the best people to ask this question. You have two highly successful coaches that uh, you, you got to be, you know, cover their beat. You know, you had the Tom Landry era in Dallas, a successful coach, maybe not the, you know, at least didn't look like he had much of a personality, very stoic and uh, mm-hmm. matter of fact and down to business. And you have Parcell sort of in that same vein, but maybe even a little bit more old school than Landry. He was more, you know, a little bit more animated, almost Lombardi-ish, but, yes. but uh, you know, you have, you have these two coaches that uh, sim- somewhat similar style, but different. How was that to when you, when you had to ask questions at a, a press conference to them? How maybe uh, you have some some tales of each of them to just to show us you know, a little bit about how they were person to person. Well, first of all, I, I really enjoyed covering both of them, as different as they were. Landry, you ask him a question, he's going to answer it honestly. He's not going to talk around it. Um, might not always give you the information that you want, but he would never lie. Um, and most of the time, unless you're asking him personnel decisions that he hadn't decided on yet or was trying to withhold it from the other team. Other than that, he would always tell the truth. But he wasn't the most colorful guy to write about. You know, it's not like he filled up my notebook uh, in sessions, either in a press conference or when I talked to him myself. But I felt like I learned a lot from him. And I learned how to treat people the right way from him because he always treated people with respect. And I always wanted to be that kind of person that when people talk about them, they say, well, we may not have always liked what he wrote, but he treated with me respect and he was fair. And I, I, that's what I always tried to live by. And I think I learned a lot of that from Landry because I was only 27 when I moved to Dallas. So I was still learning. And by the time I moved back to New York after eight years in Dallas, you know, I was all full of fire. You know, I was, I mean, I, I felt like I I grew a lot in my Dallas years and, you know, covering the team with a New York attitude. Um, when I got back to New York, it was a very easy transition for me. And I just kind of even stepped it up a notch from there. And then, you know, I was there for the last two years of Parcells with the Giants. And they were so good that I spent most of my time with the Giants rather than the Jets. Because with the Daily News, I would, uh, being the NFL columnist, I would write about the Giants and the Jets, or I'd go to a, a big game out of town. But uh, especially in 1990, I was around the Giants an awful lot. And I loved sparring with Parcells in press conferences. <laughs> because he, instead of saying, I'm not going to answer that, he would answer it without giving you anything and trying to double talk you and talk around it. And two questions later, I'd come back with the same question, but I would just word it a little differently. And he was a smart guy, and I think I'm fairly intelligent. So we would kind of play in games with each other. He was trying to wear me down, and I was trying to wear him down to give me the answer I was looking for, and he was trying to get me off the topic. But um, And then that really continued. And he, you know, I covered him a lot when he was in New England and you know when he was back with the Jets for three years, and I'd go down to Dallas and write a lot about him. And, um, you know, I, I think after a while, like Landry, I think they both came to really respect me and, and like me and and know that although I can be hard on them, that I was just fair and I never had an agenda. And, you know, you're right. There are some similarities between the two, both incredibly competitive. They get shown differently. Um, Landry Moore in, in his, you know, he had that look on the sidelines sometimes when things went wrong. Parcells, you know, wouldn't try to hide his emotions. He'd just be out there yelling at players. You know? But um, I really enjoyed both of them. And and Bill and I just have just a great relationship today. You know, that now that I'm not in the day-to-day newspaper stuff anymore and, and he hasn't coached in a while, we just enjoy talking to each other. I, I talk to him like once every two weeks or so. And uh, we just tell stories. And um, he was so helpful to me writing this book because I think he really opened up in a lot of areas 
that uh, he hadn't in the past. So, um, I, listen, I've been really fortunate. Uh, I've written about Landry and and uh, and Parcells and and Coughlin, who's a fascinating guy. And the beginning of the Jimmy Johnson era, I was in Dallas. I was writing about Jimmy, and I got to know him really well just in a two month period. Uh, Belichick is an assistant coach with but, both New York teams. These are all guys that really keep uh, the secrets close to the the vest there. They're, they're not very open on what they talk about about their teams or anything. So, yeah. I mean, that's that's well, really challenging as a journalist, I'm sure. With Parcell, The re- reason Parcells was so different is that he would really talk to you off the record and tell you stuff. In a press conference, it was hard to get stuff out of him. He would never let you stray too far if you were on the wrong track on something. He he didn't want you to be wrong with an opinion or a news story. He might not correct you in front of everybody else, but he might call you off the side and say, you know, don't write that because you're wrong about this. And when he when he did that, he wasn't lying. So I I was I really did trust him that he wouldn't steer me wrong. Um, sometimes. You know, he he really wanted he, when he knew I was onto something, and he didn't want me to be onto it. He wouldn't help me, but if I was onto it, something and it was wrong, he would tell me. So, um, <laughs> now, I, I had a really interesting relationship with him when he was coaching. Now, now you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but as an insider, when you're on HBO, was there ever anything where? Parcells t- told you off the record where you say from a very good source, we heard this about the the giants or whatever team he was with. Was there any ever a case on that? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you build relationships with people and you got that trust going back and forth. Coaches like to know what's going on around the league as much as anybody else. So uh, Jimmy Johnson was amazing with that stuff. He, he was a, he was a, he loved to trade information. You know, when I would call him in Dallas when I was doing HBO, um, and he wound up doing two years of HBO with us after he left the Cowboys. But he'd always start off the conversation, what you got for me? And I'd <laughs> tell him whatever I found out, you know, since I had spoken to him the previous week. And then I'd say, what do you hear about this? What do you hear about that? And he would tell me, and he goes, no, you're not using my name, right? No, I won't use your name. I mean, that's how, I mean, that's no great secret. I mean, that's how we all do it is you build up relationships with people who you think know what's going on. And then you promise them you're not going to blow their cover and they tell you stuff that you need to know. I mean, that's how all the inside, all 4,000 insiders that there are now, that's how they do it. And it, and the level you reach as an insider is dependent on the relationships that you're able to build and the trust you're able to build. Okay. You know, no, a lot of it is, you know, how you're able to present yourself, the trust that you're able to build, you know, why would they want to talk to you and not somebody else? You, you, ha- you have to make, you want to get into a situation where they're feeding you the information and knowing you're going to protect them and they'll, you know, I can't tell you how many phone calls I've gotten over the 40 years I've been doing this with people saying, hey, you might want to check on this or, you know, I know this to be true. You can run with it. You know, you don't have to check with anybody else. That's how, you know, all these guys today at ESPN, NFL Network, all the websites that claim they have insiders, you, you got to build up your sources. And then once you got that really good inner circle of sources, you can really establish yourself with somebody who knows what they're talking about. Now that, that's interesting. I mean, I guess I never really thought about it uh, when people say that they have sources, you know, you have the insiders today coming on. So, Hey, you know, we have the source. I never thought of it being the head coach. I always thought of it. Hey, the, the trainer happened to be in the other room and, you know, I, I slipped them a hundred bucks to get this information. Cool, so. that could be, it could be anybody. Right, yeah, I I never pictured it to be the the, the head guy t- t- well, giving you information. Well, here's the thing that that just show goes to show how good these people are at protecting their sources. That you who you know you, you seem to be pretty up on everything that's going on, it comes as a surprise to you that a head coach can be a source. He can be a source on stuff happening with his own team. 
he can be a source on things happening with other teams because his best friend is an assistant coach on another mm-hmm. team, and they talk all the time. So they, you know, he knows what's going on with that team as well as his own team. You know, you you, ha- you just build a network like that, and um, w- once you got it going with a network, it's not that hard a job. You just got to make a few phone calls, and you find out everything that's going on. And now with the agents playing such a huge role in everything that's happening, and and the agents want if they do a good contract, they want it out there. There's no because the numbers are going to come out regardless through the players' association because there's you know, all this data that media people can log into and just get it like a day later. So the agents want it out there as quickly as possible if they've just done a $100 million contract. So these insiders, and I'm talking about you know, guys like Schefter and Rappaport, mm-hmm. who are probably, you know, at the top of the game right now, um, they can just sit there and agents will call them and or just text them. Here's, here's you know, Jalen Hurts' contract or here's, you know, the, the, the latest numbers on Joe Burrow, or well, I'm just making that up, but, um, you know, when you get to the point that the agents are calling you because they want you to break their story, I mean, that's a pretty good deal. And they figure with ESPN and NFL Network, it's almost like one-stop shopping because then you don't have to call all the local writers for the, you know, to cover the team about the player mm-hmm. you signed. Just give it to ESPN. You give it to Schefter or Rappaport. Everybody knows how reliable they are. You take their numbers, you know, as gospel. Um, and then the agent's got his, his contract from coast to coast, which, and the reason they do that is because then they can hold that contract up to the next guy they're trying to recruit, either as a coming into the draft or a guy who's already a veteran who's switching agents. He's got those, you know, those hundred million dollar contracts to hold up to the guy. Well, look what I did for, you know, this guy. I can do the same for you. <laughs> okay, how about how about the other side of that? Now, have, have you ever been used as a vehicle for a smokescreen? Maybe, uh, maybe a, a coach telling you, "Hey, we're interested in this guy for the upcoming draft," and really they're not because they're trying to cover up. They they want they want to go in a different direction, but they don't. They, they want to throw everybody else off the, the scent a little bit. Have you? Have... Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny you asked me that question because uh, one, you know, comes right to mind with the passing of Gil Brandt recently, somebody who I knew very, very well in Dallas. So it's, it's 1988. This is taken back a ways, but the players I'm going to name, you, you'll, you'll know. Cowboys were picking 11th, I believe. And we all thought they wanted Michael Irvin. And um, Cowboys had taken a receiver named Mike Sherrard in the first round in 1986. Unfortunately, he broke his leg. It was either 87 or 80. It must have been 87. Um, so that's why the Cowboys were back in the market for a wide receiver. So Gil calls me up and he goes, uh, Myers? He's always talking to me like that. Myers, don't you go right and we're going to take Michael Irvin because we're not taking him. I go, go, what are you talking about? You need wide receivers. There was like five of them in that draft that were really good. You know, uh, Tim Brown, Sterling Sharp, Anthony Miller. I'm probably missing somebody there. And um, I said, go, what are you talking about? You're definitely taking a wide receiver. It's the weakest position on your team. And he goes, no, you should write with taking Gaston Green. If you want it, it will look good. I said, you're not taking a running back. Remember, he was running back from UCLA who's incredibly fast. I said, Gil. You have Herschel Walker and Tony Dorsett. <laughs> Not taking Gaston Green. He goes, yeah, we are. He goes, you're right, Michael. And he starts telling me all this stuff about Michael Irvin, why they wouldn't take him. Do you know he did this in college? He did that in college. Bad-mouthing Michael Irvin to try to steer me off. And one of his motivations in doing that is he knew I was very friendly with George Young from the Giants. And the Giants were picking behind the Cowboys and – Gill was concerned that the Giants were going to trade up ahead of the Cowboys to take Irvin. So he wanted it out there that they weren't going to take Irvin. So he tells me this on a, on a, like a Tuesday morning or something like that. And later that day, the Cowboys have their pre pre-draft luncheon and I'm sitting next to the Landry. And I said, Tom, what do you think of Gaston green? He goes, um, Oh, he's really fast. I said, well, you think you might take him? He goes, why would we take him? We got Herschel Walker and Tony Dorsett. (laughs) 
I said, well, yeah. <laughs> so, so Landry's honesty sort of put the Gil Brandt's uh, smoke screen at the bed. <laughs> you know what, Darren? I might have written it in that Tuesday paper. That might have been what I did. And then I went to Landry and I said, what do you think about Gaston Green? And he says, there's no way we're taking him. <laughs> I fell right for that trap. And I thought I was so savvy. I mean, it made no sense whatsoever. They did wind up trading Dorsett. I think it might have even been after that draft. I can't remember. Um, <laughs> or maybe it was the next year. But in any event, you know, Tony was towards the end. Herschel was just kind of getting rolling. And taking a running back made absolutely no sense in a really strong wide receiver draft. So, of course, when I confirmed and, – and Gaston Green was still on the board when the Cowboys picked. And Dallas, of course, took Michael Irvin. I felt like an idiot. and But I didn't let that go unnoticed with Gil. I confronted him and and said, I don't, I don't put up with people lying to me. And I'll never forget that you lied to me and made me look stupid in my newspaper just to benefit yourself. That I, I, you know, I'd already been here eight years. I thought we were way beyond that kind of stuff. And I was really, really mad. Um, Because here it is, I thought I had a scoop. And instead, he was using me to set a smokescreen, trying to throw off the rest of the league. And because he knew I was a respected writer and that I always talked to George and my story would get picked up. He, I mean, Gil was really smart, and I just fell into the trap. And that never happened to me again with anybody. When they told me something that I thought my instinct said, you know, this can't be, possibly be right. Yeah, I mean, don't you sometimes, as as uh, uh, you know, journalists is covering a particular team, don't you sort of almost have to be sometimes. Uh, not always their friend, but sometimes you're their biggest critic because you're so close to them. You you owe that sort of to your your readers uh, to try to be honest with them, where maybe the team isn't being honest because they're trying to get an advantage gained in a draft or game time or whatever. Oh no, we're not going to run that play. Or no, this guy's hurt; he's not going to play in the game. You know, they, they want to do that to try to gain an advantage. And maybe let the other team get their guard down, or maybe not prepare, or whatever. But but you, as that uh, spokesperson to the public for the team, you sort of have to be that that person, uh, especially uh, folks like yourself that aren't working directly for the team. You know, like uh, the PR. Yeah, I mean, has. it's a tremendous level of responsibility uh, because we are the conduit between the team and the readers, but we're not the spokesman for the team by any means. We're not a mouthpiece for the team. So it's it's our job to be cynical and accept nothing at face value. And, I mean, I really learned a valuable lesson with that whole Gaston Green nonsense um, that somebody that I trusted, that I knew trusted me, would just flat out lie to me and use me. And, um, you know, Gil, Gil and I, it was never the same after that. Um now, I, I left Dallas a year later, and he was let go by Jerry Jones, you know, almost right around the same time that I left Dallas. So Gil was never in a position of power again. Um, but, I, you know, I did talk to him, and I had a good relationship with him. I mean, I do hold a grudge for people that make me look bad publicly. But, you know, at some point, enough years go by, you just kind of forget about it. Um but I was never in a position of having to rely on him for information again. Um, it would have been interesting, you know, if I had remained in Dallas and, and he stayed with the Cowboys, you know, what would have happened to our relationship. But, you know, I've had agents lie to me, you know, about some contract numbers to try to make themselves look better. And um, everybody's been lied to in this business. But as you get older and smarter, you're able to detect, you know, fact from fiction. At least you like to think you can do that. But some sometimes, you know, and now it's changed so much, Darren, with with the internet, where people want, would rather be first than right. Because if you're wrong, you know, somebody will correct you in five minutes and they'll forget that you were wrong. You were the first with the information, but you were wrong about it. See, I, that to me was unacceptable. 
I want to be first and I want to be right. And um, there, there's so many people covering the NFL now who think they know what's going on and they don't talk to anybody. You know, they claim they talk to sources when they have no sources. You know, it's just people sitting in their basement making stuff up. Hmm. And it's it's made it, it's a much more difficult environment to cover the league now than it was, you know, when I was in Dallas or even with the Daily News from like 1989. The last few years at the Daily News, I didn't enjoy as much because the internet was just changing things. Now, I love the internet. I love Twitter or X now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's made it much more difficult because now anybody can just give themselves gives themselves a voice. And with the teams are credentialing all these different websites now. So there are a lot of people showing up who never would have been credentialed, you know, in the past. And, um, you know, a lot of people have no idea what's going on, but kind of portray themselves as a, as an expert. And when they put stuff out there, it spreads like wildfire, even if there's no truth to it. So it's made it much harder for the, you know, the real reporters to, um, to maintain their credibility because everybody tends to get lumped together. Yeah. Uh, that's, so, that's your journalism lesson for the day. Yeah. Uh, I, I, sorry, I took you down, down a rabbit hole and, but uh, we're going we're to bring it back here a little bit. So let's back to, to your book. Uh, let's, we have a lot of listeners and there's a lot of football fans that are 45 years and younger that probably didn't get to watch the, the giants uh, of 1986, like you mm-hmm. and I did. And, or at least remember uh, watching them and watching them come up and everything. some of the things that we talked about. So, you know, in the book, and it can be in the form of a tease, but what's one thing that you can put out there that gets that, that person that's less than 45 years old to say, Oh God, I'm going to get a copy of this book. I want to read about, about this particular piece in it. But what's one thing that you can share with us? Well, I'll tell you this, and I'm not going to, necessarily name any names right here, but there, there are five players on the book who went on the record telling me that in one form or another, the impact that football had in their lives had them considering suicide at one point. Oh, oh boy. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's obviously very sad stuff, but the good news about that is they found their way out of whatever their issues were and they're doing okay today. And um, I think I'm hopeful a lot of people who were not around to see the 86 Giants will want to read this book because it is one of the more iconic teams of the Super Bowl era with, you know, so many big names. And I think people will learn a lot, not only about how football was back then, but again, the impact on football on these players' lives, which is something that every player who's playing today and kids who are in high school and college and early on in their NFL careers, they need to pay more attention to life after football and not only setting themselves up financially because with the money being so astronomical now, you only have to play three years, you can be set up for the rest of your life. But they, they have to be really careful with themselves physically and suffering concussions, not feeling pressured. I know there's a concussion protocol now, but players also can feel pressured to try to get back on the field too soon. And hopefully they they have enough safeguards in place that they won't be able to uh, jump over the different standards that they have to prove to show they're capable of playing again. But, you know, players will do anything to get back on the field because they're afraid of losing their jobs. Um, that That's one of the inherent problems with pro football is that the next man up theory also means next man up, and you're not coming back. And that's a scary yeah. thought. That's a yeah. really scary thought. So these guys, you know, they, they rush back from not just concussions, but, you know, ACLs, um, really, you know, high ankle sprains, which are pretty much some form of a broken ankle or torn ligaments or something like that. Those mm-hmm. are really difficult injuries. These Liz Frank injuries are really hard to come back from. And players just feel like, they want to rush through the rehab to get back on the field to save their jobs. And, mm. you know, they need to think about the repercussions when they're 40 and 50 years old. Are they going to walk with a limp? 
they get a, you know need a walker or a wheelchair or whatever. The players, you know, in their twenties don't think like that because they think they're indestructible and superhuman. But um, if players read my book and and the fans read it and high school kids read it, they'll. And I'm not trying to paint this really, you know, picture of that it's a horrible sport and nobody should play it. I'm just saying they need to go in with their eyes wide open. And I'm painting a picture here of what it's like when you're in your 50s and 60s. Now, the major difference is that medicine has improved exponentially and they have these concussion safeguards in place that hopefully are really preventing the players from getting back on the field too soon. But life after football is is such a crucial topic. Wow, very well said. And uh, I mean, uh, uh, you're keeping it real. That's real history of football that has been in many of our generation, our lifetime that we've witnessed. And now these uh, these folks are suffering that were our heroes. And, uh, you know, they, they still need the respect and, uh, you know, the perseverance to help them through their daily lives. They're, they're still heroes. Uh, to, I've, I've got to see uh, this summer, a couple of gentlemen that played in the seventies that, you know, myself as a teenager and a young man looked up to and watched on, you know, couldn't wait to watch them on TV on Sundays. And, you know, th- these guys are, they're, they're better than expected and uh, love to talk and tell stories. And it's just great. Uh, you know, they're real people. And that's, that's something we got to remember. So uh, Gary, why don't you right now, why don't you give us the title of the book and where folks can get a copy of it at? Okay, it's called uh, Once a Giant, A Story of Victory, Tragedy, and Life After Football. And you can see the cover right behind me. Um, It's really a cool-looking book, I have to say that. Uh, I had nothing to do with the design of it. Um, And it's going to be available in the bookstore September the 12th, up until that point on Amazon or any of the online services that, um, you know, people enjoy buying buying books from. And... um, it's done really well in the, in the pre-orders, which, you know, obviously I'm happy about. And a lot of the stories are, are resonating with uh, radio shows or shows like yours and people want to talk about it. And um, I, I'm really hopeful it'll do well. And I, I, like I said, I think it does tell a very important story. Well, we really appreciate uh, you writing this book and preserving that part of football history, not only with that great uh, you know 86 Giants team but thereafter and telling us the whole story uh you know being the honest truth of you know what's going on with some of the, these folks uh the good and the bad uh that goes with it and uh, so we can appreciate what they've done and we appreciate you spending time and telling us you know what it's like to be an insider and you know a journalist with a team uh it's opened some some lights to, to myself even and I'm sure the listeners as well we appreciate your honesty appreciate your time and uh thank you for joining us today it's my pleasure, Darren. Thanks a lot. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. 
Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.